Well, there are some things that I wished would be different in life right now. I don't know if you've uh, seen on the news or heard on the news, watched on the news or not about the Supreme Court, not Supreme Court, Congress rather, talking about, hey, maybe we should get rid of daylight savings time. That's something that I've noticed, but personally, I've been actually thinking a little bit more about, man, you know, it'd be really cool if they just added two more hours to every day and an extra day to every week. Because for me right now, recently married within the last couple years, recently had a kid within the last seven months, like I feel like there is not enough time in a day to get done what I need to get done, right? And those of you who have been married for years, you're like, yeah, welcome to the party of, of having kids. And so for me, I have a lot of hobbies. Uh, I love hanging out with people within the church, outside of the church, uh, love going on runs, love uh, my family, but trying to fit that all within a 24-hour time slot seems impossible. And so something kind of selfishly on the surface that I'm wishing that Congress would do, just like, you know, add some days to the week for this guy here. I'd appreciate that. Um, But kind of at a deeper level, something that I am uh, going to the Lord with is this desire in my heart to have more wisdom and experience in life. Because as I'm walking through life with friends, with family, uh, with people in this church body, there is a desire in my heart to provide wisdom from the Lord. And I feel so inadequate uh, to do that day after day. And I'm just like, Lord, would you give me the same sort of wisdom that you gave Solomon? God, would you give me that, that heart for others and not only a heart for others, but wisdom from you to be able to provide encouragement and direction for people around me so that they would find hope in Christ. And we all have different things in our life that we get discontent with. Maybe for you, as you think about life right now, uh, there's a very specific circumstance that comes to mind and your discontentment is 100% around that circumstance. Or maybe your discontentment is around uh, that feeling of, man, why am I always thinking about that? Like, it's one thing to have the circumstance, another thing to be forced into this situation where it feels like you're dwelling on it all the time. Maybe you're in that place. Maybe it's uh, a desire for a healthy marriage, and you and your wife have had closeness and togetherness for years, and now within the last couple months or last year, there's been something that's created conflict, caused distance, and you're like, man, would love to have that closeness again in our marriage, or maybe it's on the other side of the coin, and you're like, man, I have been single for a while, and Lord, what are you doing? Like, you've given me this desire to be married, And I have that desire day after day after day, and it keeps looking like that's just either not going to be or it's not on the timeline that I'm preferring. God, what am I to do with this? And there's discontentment in your heart because of that, or maybe you're in a place where it's like has nothing to do with that sort of relationship, but it's friendship. And it's just like, I just, maybe I'm a college student, just moved to Columbia, trying to create a friend group again, and it's taken a while. Friends here just don't seem the same as friends back home. Maybe it has nothing to do with relationships at all. Maybe it's the career path that you found yourself in or a college student, the uh, degree that you're working through. You're like, yeah, I, I don't know why. I thought sociology was my thing. I'm sitting in these classes. Discontentment is something that we all wrestle with. And I think uh, across the board, across the world right now, it's something that we see and feel often. 
And whether it's the pandemic or, or the war in Ukraine, there's a lot of unrest that I think uh, everybody in this world is kind of carrying as they're living life. And so up on the screen, there's a, a cute little graphic that uh, threw together that kind of explains discontentment. Discontentment is the little figure in the middle. We have our given circumstance, and then we have the desired circumstance that we don't have, and we're caught in this land of discontentment all the time. Maybe you're in that place right now this morning. Maybe you're not. But this morning, the cool thing is, in God's Word, as we continue the series in the book of John, we're going to see in John 5 how to deal with discontentment. God's Word provides wisdom for our life so that we can know how to live. And this morning, in John 5, kind of through three different points, which will be on the screen as well, we're going to be able to walk through and see how to deal with this thing called discontentment. Number one, it'll be through acknowledging the illusion of better circumstances. Number two, acknowledging the illusion of perfection and control. And number three, resting in the timeless work of Jesus. And so God's word shows us how to deal with this discontentment thing that we face in life. And so let's walk through John 5 with one another for uh, the sake of understanding God's word in that way. And so let me pray for us and we'll begin uh, to do that. And so God, we just thank you that we can open up your word and be guided uh, to know how to deal with unrest in our heart, to know how to deal with circumstances that maybe we don't prefer, Lord. And God, I pray uh, that your spirit would uh, just be alive and at work uh, in our hearts as we uh, hear from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll go ahead and turn to John 5, if you're not already there, from when we did the scripture reading. Uh, and as you're turning there, I do a little bit of the contextual work. Uh, and so basically, uh, last week, Matt hit on the, the, the story in John 4, where the official son uh, was sick, and the official in faith goes to Jesus and says, heal my son. That official had a certain faith that sent him to Christ. He had a lot of money. He had a lot of position in life, but one thing he could not do was heal his son. And so in faith, he goes to Jesus in desperation and says, heal my son. And because of that, he then begins to follow after Christ, and so does his whole family. And so that's where we were at last week. That took place in the area of Cana. Jesus has since gone from Cana. He's entering Jerusalem to attend one of the three festivals that Jews would attend, either Pentecost, uh, either Passover, or the Feast of Booths. And so Jesus is here uh, in Jerusalem for one of those festivals. And as we go into John 5, we're gonna see that there's kind of two different parties of people, one being uh, this man who is physically impaired and the other group of people uh, being the religious leaders. And so that in mind, uh, let's go ahead and begin to uh, take apart that first point in the text that we see uh, that deals with better circumstances. And so let's read again verses two to 15 uh, and just focusing in on this man who is longing for a better circumstance. Verse two, it says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. 
Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walked. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. The first thing that we ought to notice in the text is something that I did not notice right away, is that verse 4 is missing in most translations. If you look in your Bibles, it goes straight from 3 to 5. And so uh, the reasoning for that is verse 4 is something uh, that was found in the 2nd century manuscripts at the time, but something that wasn't present in the earliest manuscripts that we have uh, of the word of the Lord. And, and so uh, scholars now kind of look at that as either something uh, to, to notice as, yep, that, that means this might have worked more so as a commentary for those people in the second century, or other scholars would say, no, we'll, we'll take that as the word of the Lord for us here. When we look at this, we'd say, yeah, this is something that we can serve as maybe a commentary for a cultural perception at the time, but not something that is innately God's word in and of itself. And so uh, up on the screen, uh, we have what verses three and four would say in the ESV if they were included. Uh, and so it begins, in these colonnades lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Some scholars, as they, they look at that, they would say that's representing the cultural perception, kind of this superstitious thing at the time where people thought that the, the hand of the Lord, uh, or the angel of the Lord, rather, would, would come and stir the water, and the first people that enter into the water were healed. Other scholars would say, uh, no, more so, that is literally what would happen. And so this morning, we're going to kind of run with that idea that this is something uh, that is more of a superstitious thing that was perceived by culture at that time. And so that textual detail aside, a few observations we can begin to make in the text is, number one, that it, it was understandable for this man uh, who had been physically impaired for 38 years to desire his circumstance to change. For 38 years, he had been living life in a way that was likely very different than he would have preferred. He was incapable of doing many things that other people around him were doing. He was finding himself very dependent on other people to go to the places that he wanted to go. And for years on end, he likely had this wrestle with discontentment of why am I given this circumstance? And so we have to empathize with the fact that he's sitting in just this utter place where it was out of his control. It wasn't his decision to make, but here he was. This felt like the cards that he was dealt, and it felt like the cards that he would forever hold. So that was the circumstance that he had, and we can empathize and understand that. But I think secondly, we can see how the circumstance infiltrated his heart. In verse 5, it says, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. This man had been going to these roofed colonnades for years. 
Year after year, he had been showing up in, in this place, waiting for this perceived stirring of the waters so that by chance, maybe he would be able to be the first person in the water. So by chance, maybe he could be healed. And so we see him going to this place that culture said, oh, you're sick? This is where you need to go. This place is gonna heal you. This is where you're gonna find your hope. This is where you're gonna be able to deal with that discontentment that you have in life. And so year after year, I wonder if he's showing up at this house of superstition, but not showing up at the house of the Lord. He's trying to deal with that discontentment in the way that culture was. Trying to get healed so that he doesn't have to deal with this anymore. In verse 7, after Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? What does he say? It says, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? Do you, do you want to be healed? Individual who, who has been wrestling with this for years, do you want to be healed? Rather than him saying, yes, Lord, I want to be healed, we see him spinning it. And we can see in his tone that he's pointing the finger. He's saying, I've been coming here year after year after year, but these people, they won't put me in the water. These people are about their thing, not about my thing. They won't put me in the water. And he doesn't stop there. He says also, these people are getting in before me. And so sometimes it's, it sounds like this man was able to get in the water, but he was never, never able to get there first. And so he has this tone of like, like, it's their fault. Jesus asked, do you want to be healed? And he says, these people aren't letting me be healed. And Jesus heals him in love amidst that. And then in verse 15, after Jesus has healed him, it says, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. In this circumstance, he points the finger at Jesus. The, the religious officials, leaders rather, they pull him aside and say, hey, you, like, why are you carrying this mat? You're not supposed to carry this mat on the Sabbath. What's wrong with you for doing this? They, they look past the fact that he's been healed and they point the finger and they're like, what are you doing? Why are you carrying that mat? And he's like, whoa, that man that just healed me, he told me to do this. And so we see in that moment, he's seeking for approval to the cultural leaders and the religious leaders. And so he's blaming Jesus. Well, yeah, he healed me. And so because he healed me, then I was carrying my mat. And that's really at the root of this issue. And we see him pointing the finger at Jesus there. And so I think the thing that we can take away from this portion of the narrative is that the impaired man gave his circumstance power to rule his heart. He's caught in the weariness of what felt like a dead-end circumstance. And in that place, he, he tries to deal with that discontentment by going to this seemingly house of superstition. And we see him pointing the finger at the other hurting people around him at this scene. And we see him pointing the finger at Jesus as well. And he's in a place of brokenness, seeking culture's repair method and not the Lord, and seeking culture's approval and not the Lord. And so what's in man, humanity gives 
circumstance the power to rule their heart. That's what we do. Up on the screen, there's a couple uh, graphics that we're going to look at here briefly that depict what goes on. And so internally, what takes place so often when we have discontentment is that there's some circumstance, some certain crisis that happens in life that sends us into this place of overwhelm and anxiety. It's like, oh man, this thing just happened. How am I gonna deal with this? What am I gonna do about this? Oh no, like that's the overwhelm that often sets in when we have a circumstance. Completely human, completely understandable. If you have that, that's normal. Don't freak out. That's a human thing. And so we have our circumstance that then leads us to overwhelm and anxiety. And then with that though, we often find our place where we are dwelling on that circumstance over and over. And we're wrestling with that anxiety over and over. And as we do that, we dwell and dwell and dwell and become discontent. And as we sit in that discontentment, what happens? It says it confirms the threat, confirms the threat that that circumstance was. And so every time that a new circumstance that's unexpected comes up or undesirable circumstance that shows up and stays there, We kind of walk through this cycle of overwhelm and then discontentment. We're confirming that circumstances rule our life. And I believe that's what was taking place in this story with that man. Understandable, but not necessarily the way that God calls us to live. And so on the next slide, it says our external response. And so we have that crisis, that circumstance, that overwhelm and anxiety. And as we sit in that over and over, a lot of times we move to a place where it's like, all right, this is what I'm feeling internally. And so now I'm going to act out of this inner feeling. What takes place? A lot of times we repair the hurt with some sort of surface fix to the crisis. And so we had the crisis, we had the circumstance that came up and then we're like, okay, I don't want to be overwhelmed by this all the time. I don't want this discontentment. And so I'm going to repair this hurt by something on the surface. Maybe I'm going to go to this pool and it's going to fix this thing. And say that man would have been healed at that pool. And that's what his hope was in. That would have been a facade of contentment because someday he would get sick again. And someday he would have a circumstance that he didn't desire And he was placing his hope in circumstance rather than in Christ. And that's something that happens in our lives as well. So how do we deal with discontentment? We acknowledge the illusion of better circumstances. Better circumstances aren't a bad thing to desire. It's something that we can pray for. It's something that we can hope for. But better circumstances are not what we live for. We must accept that circumstances can't develop a lasting contentment. They can't develop a lasting hope, and they can't create true satisfaction in our life that's stable and sturdy and lasting. The only sure footing that we can have is in the presence of the Lord, and we see that even in this story. Verse 8 and 9, it was Jesus who healed him and not the pool. Where this man finds healing is in Christ. And we also see Jesus showing him a better way to live. In verse 14, he says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus is giving him insight for his life. And so even in this story, the sure footing that we see is in Christ. And so we must be able to acknowledge the illusion of better circumstances 
because better circumstances can never bring true contentment. And so this morning, what circumstance in your life is competing for your love, is competing for your heart? What are you putting your hope in? Is it that something in your home would change? And if it would change, then everything would be different. Is it this desire that something in a relationship in your life would change? And if that were to change for the better, then everything would be better. Is it something marital? Is it something with your career? What's that place of discontentment that you're tired of dealing with, that you have this belief that, man, if that was just better, I wouldn't have this life wrestle anymore? Through this story, I think we can see that better circumstance in and of itself can be an illusion because we can't put our hope in a better circumstance. The second way we can deal with discontentment is we're seeing the illusion of perfection and control. Let's read from the second part of verse 9 through verse 16. It says, Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is that man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. The religious leaders were the second group here that were dealing with discontentment. In their life. In verse 10, we can see after this physically impaired man had been healed, we see the religious leaders not noticing the work of God, not noticing the change in this man's life. Like, if this man had been in that area for the last 38 years, they likely would have known who this individual was. Jerusalem was not a ginormous place by any means, nor was this pool that distant from the temple. And so what's taking place here is this man's whole life just changed. The last 38 years of his life suddenly look like a new chapter. And in this moment, the religious leaders don't notice that. They say, hey, what are you carrying your mat for? And they're calling for right living. They want to see perfection around them. They had crafted this rule and this extra biblical, beyond the Bible law, so that they could try to help people be righteous. Just live a moral life. That's what you need to do. If you want to look good before God, just live a moral life. And they were casting that internal desire that they had upon that man who had just been healed, which is why they're calling him out. They zero in on the man's failure to follow a certain law, rather than noticing the work of God. The second thing that the leaders desired was authority, power, control. They had been kind of the, the shepherding voice for the people of Israel for centuries. They had been existing there as, as the caretakers of God's people. And within the last couple of years, they've seen John the Baptist start to preach out in the wilderness who took many of their temple goers out to the wilderness so that they could hear from the Lord. And as the religious leaders experienced that, that was something that they feared and did not desire. 
higher because it meant that the authority and the control was no longer just in their hands. And it didn't stop with John the Baptist. Jesus begins his ministry. Jesus is doing his work. And as Jesus is doing his work, what's going on there? There's this internal conflict that the religious leaders are having, this discontentment because their power is being taken from them. They see another voice shepherding and guiding rather than their own. And we can see that desire clearly in verse 16 where it says, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. They were trying to pick apart his ministry. Even if it was a a ministry of helping hurt people experience healing, they're calling him out on that. Why? Because they desired that power and that control. The impaired man longed for his circumstance to change. He longed for approval, and it led to discontentment. But for the Jewish leaders, their discontentment was born, an imperfection that they saw in other people. And it was also born out of a lack of control that they now had. And with both of those things in question, it left them dissatisfied, which, as we can see in verse 16, brutal out of hate. But verse 18, which we'll hit on next week, Verse 18 goes on to say, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. So not only did they hate the work that Jesus was doing, they were calling him out on it and they were saying, you know what? We also need to kill this guy. We don't just hate him in our heart. Like we wanna make this happen externally. And that's what their discontentment led to. Rage that in time they would follow through with. And so this entire scene, we see this search for contentment, for moral living, and control. And the reality is the religious leaders, they were seeking this contentment, but they never found it, right? Even when Judas tries to side with them later on, what does he do? He ends his own life because of the internal chaos it creates in his world. It sends the religious leaders spiraling. They sought contentment, perfection, and, contr- and control, but they never found it. And so if we want to deal with discontentment, we, we don't only acknowledge that better circumstances many times can just be an illusion, but we can also see that perfection and control in and of themselves are such an illusion as well because they lead us to a place of incessant self-critique, incessant judgment of others, and then a place of hate when our authority and our control is lost. The final way that we deal with discontentment is by resting in the work of Christ. In verse 17 it says, But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. My Father is working until now, and I am working. The work of God has been going on every Sabbath day, Every day, every hour, from dawn to dusk and dusk to dawn, since the garden. Ever since the fall, God has been at work pursuing this story of redemption so that his discontent and even backstabbing people could know him, could love him, could walk with him again. Even though there's been a break between holy God and holy man in the garden, 
Because of sin, God pursues, and he's at work all the more. And I think when I read this text at first, I had this belief that it's just like, okay, it's, uh, it's kind of a classic story uh, of Jesus healing somebody. Okay, we're going to talk about healing. It's going to be great, and, and that's the, the point. And it's like, no, this is actually showing that contentment is to be found in Christ because Christ is at work. He's always at work, even on the Sabbath here in this story. He's at work because God is alive and active, especially on the day where God calls his people to gather and be with one another. And so the story provides so much more than this truth of, ah, God can heal God pursues us and he shows us where true rest, Sabbath, where true contentment can be found. And it's in him, not in a certain circumstance, not in a certain situation, but in unity with him. Even though the physically impaired man was seeking superstition and approval, Jesus seeks him out. He heals him. He offers him a lasting hope, displaying how rest and contentment can be found in Christ. Even though the religious leaders seek to corner and persecute Jesus, Jesus offers them truth to help them know who he truly is. And so what are the implications in verse 17 of Jesus working on the Sabbath? It's that we can deal with our discontentment. Because Jesus' past work, his perfect life that he's living out in this story that we've been reading in John, because of his perfect life, we can deal with discontentment. Because of his atoning death on the cross where he takes the punishment for our sins on his shoulders, we can deal with discontentment. Because of his future work, because of the resurrection, because he has risen again, we can raise again someday to be with him. And so in this text, we see Jesus' past work. In Colossians, it talks about this, how we can find forgiveness and the redemption for our souls. In Colossians 1, it says, And you who were once alienated, set apart, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith. Through Jesus' past work, we can have contentment. We don't have to hope for certain circumstances. We don't have to hope for approval of humanity. We don't have to live lives of perfection or climb our way to him. Because Jesus is at work, we can rest in the contentment of his faithfulness. In 2 Timothy, it says, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. We want to deal with discontentment. We have to see that it begins with that relationship with Christ. That is through the timeless work of him, living that perfect life, his death upon the cross, his resurrection. That's where we can finally find rest and contentment that lasts for more than a moment. In 1882, Charles Spurgeon wrote a quote. Well, he wrote a book, and now I took a quote out of it. It's a better way to put it. People don't write quotes. Um, <clears throat> I went by the field of the sluggish church, 
And it was all grown over with thorns and nettles, and the stone wall was broken down, so that no one could scarcely tell which was the church and which was the world. Yet still she, the church, slept and slept and slept, and nothing could waken her. Are we going to be individuals and a church who kind of sleeps in this discontentment and stays in this place where we look no different than the world? Or are we going to be a church? Are we going to be individuals who have so much faith in Christ that we're going to be kind of this beacon of hope to culture around us of like, oh yeah, anything can hit them and they actually are steady and faithful because they've put their hope in an anchor that cannot be moved. Like, are we going to be a church that looks the same as culture? Or are we going to be a church that reaches culture through our pursuit of God and through our pursuit of others? Are we going to be a church that sleeps away our days in disappointed circumstance? Are we going to be spiritually asleep, stuck in idleness and restless stupor? Are we going to be waiting for our circumstance to change? Or instead, will we change? Will we allow the work of God in us to change us so that as that circumstance comes, we can have hope? Are we going to be individuals in a church that recognize discontentment when it comes? Because it will. And as it comes, are we going to recognize it, see it, and know that, man, there's some illusions that we're going to want to believe when there's bad circumstances. And we're going to want to put our hope in a better circumstance. We're going to want to put our hope in maybe being able to just live a little bit more moral. But I believe this text is calling us to put our hope not in those things, but in Christ and his work. And so there's some things that you and I both wish would be different in life, right? Like can joke about the Congress thing. Like we all have a lot of things that it's like, man, I really wish that this part of my life would be different. That's going to show up in our life. We're all going to befriend discontentment at some point. But the question, the tension, the curiosity in our heart is like, all right, well, what are we going to do with it when it does show up? And I believe that God's word calls us to pursue him in that. And so for those who are searching, who've been waiting for circumstances to change, maybe you're not following after the Lord, for, for you, consider what sort of hope is there in an individual circumstance? And even if you get that circumstance, is that circumstance going to be so sturdy to build your life on? Or is that circumstance going to pass? And so for you this morning, it's considering following after Christ where we have a true lasting anchor. For Christians, for those who are maybe discontent right now, I believe the, the text is calling you to pursue God all the more to open up the book of Psalms as you see discontentment showing up in your life, to not let that discontentment ruin you, but instead allow it to fasten you to Christ and his word, remembering the faith that you have and remembering the truth that he has for you in the love letter that he wrote to us. And so for me, like when there's discontentment, it's like, hello, Psalms, like instantly. And we can train ourselves to do that so that when circumstances come up, when discontentment does brew, we don't have to be defined by it. So if you've been wrestling with discontentment, turning to him in that. And if you're in a spot where it's like, yeah, I feel like I've been doing that well lately. Like for you, be a witness and continue to share that anchor that you have in Christ with other people around you.
Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, we just thank you uh, for your word again, and we thank you that uh, there's stories that, that we can uh, pick apart to understand more clearly, God, and I pray uh, that this uh, word is something that we latch onto, God, when discontentment shows up in life, and uh, Lord, I pray that as uh, just individuals for sure are thinking through different circumstances in their life, God, I pray uh, that they would see that even if that circumstance were to change, God, if that isn't something uh, of your will, Lord, would they see that they can be anchored in you even amidst that, God? And so, Lord, I pray that we would be uh, people who seek you out in seasons of restlessness and discontentment. And God, would we see the hope that we have in you? In Jesus' name, amen.